As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. Welcome to Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm joined this week by the writers for The Athletic, Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Ian. Hello. Good afternoon. Our first podcast in the post-Mesit Ozil era. <laughs> uh, he has basically left Arsenal. We're going to talk about him and his legacy, such as it is. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about the games. Uh, that we've played since our podcast as our last podcast Newcastle and Crystal Palace and also about the pieces that James and Amy have written for The Athletic before we do that um, we thought we'd ask for favourite Mesut moments we put this out on Twitter and we had a huge uh, number of replies Um, but we'll start with you guys James what's your favourite Mesut moment? There's so many um the one I'm going to pick, however, is an assist, which is probably fitting given you know the manner of his play and, and the contribution he made to the club. It's one against Aston Villa in 2015. I don't know if you remember it, but it's the one where the ball is played up to the halfway line and oh, yeah. instead of, sort of bringing it under control, he just sort of extends his foot, flicks it off the back of his left heel and sends Olivier Giroud through on goal. It, the imagination, the vision, the technique... They're all absolutely superb. And it produced the rare sight of Olivier Giroud running clear of a defence and scoring a one-on-one. <laughs> it's a touch. He almost takes it wide. And you're thinking, please don't miss this because the assist was so beautiful. But uh, yeah, I just think really that summed up him at his best, to be honest with you. You know, having that ability to split open a defence, see things that other players couldn't see and, and execute technically so well. Yeah, Olivier did almost mess that one up, though, didn't he? I do. I had. I had a. It was a close run thing. Yeah, I'm glad he put it away because you know, (laughs) I wouldn't be sat here talking about the pass that nearly led to a goal against Aston Villa. I'm sure of that. No, there were a lot of them as well. Amy, what about you? Well, I mean, I I absolutely get James's point about the assists, and I think that there's a um, almost way where they merge into one in a way. Picking one is is tough because I had this image of lots and lots of, you know such delicacy of uh, the and I think deception is the thing that springs to mind as well he often it was like the no look pass or it was like just picking that moment when the opposition are probably not expecting the ball and it, it arrived so perfectly um but the Ludogorets goal which I know is 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 one that came up a lot when uh, we put an appeal out for, on Twitter for people's favorite moments and it really was uh, one of those where um, for the majority of us who were probably sat at home uh, on our sofas of an evening rather than being in Ludogorets. Were you there, James? I, I definitely wasn't. But I it wasn't, was, but I've heard it was a, a great trip. I've generally. heard it was a great trip too. I'm yeah. a bit gutted I wasn't there, but hey. Um, but being at home and one of those where, you know, you're sort of maybe sitting on your own one evening watching the game and you almost feel like crying for for blissfulness of it. It was so. It was sort of crying and laughing. I mean, it was. It, it the thing about it, if you pixelated 
Mesut Ozil's face or all the people around it and changed the colours of the shirts or whatever and said, who would score a goal like this? Like the, the finesse of his touches and those feints and that deafness in the way that he um, uh, dummies his way past what felt like the entirety of the wherever the city that Ludogorets play their football, Razgograd or something, is it? Um, someone correct me. Uh, James, help me out here. Uh, <laughs> <I thought laughs> anyway, that's right, Razgrad. It is right. correct. Is it? Razgrad, wow, stab in the dark. Anyway, um, it, it, it just was, um, it had to be him. It's, it's quintessential Ozil and uh, it was a last-minute winner in the Champions League to qualify the team, so it had meaning as well. So, um, And a lot of people, half the people probably sort of uh, uh, had that feeling of, well, it was only Ludogorets and who the hell are they? And it's so almost like it doesn't really count as much as a piece of art or, or piece of footballing skill. But uh, on the other hand, I, I, th- I felt like it was one of those goals where you felt quite proud of it because it went viral across the world and you could see it being sort of appreciated and tweeted and commented on from pretty much anywhere where they can access the internet it was the talk of football that night and it was uh arsenal's player and their their star player who'd just come out of a really really good season um the combination with Alexis Sanchez was exciting and there he was on the Champions League stage producing uh, you know a, a, a real moment to savor for the ages uh, a picture book goal so i think that will live on for sure and then just, just oddly i don't want to kind of kill the mood or anything i knew but... you'd have another one <laughs> <laughs> no I mean, well if i do have another one it's another one that actually isn't something i can specify but i remember being at a game against somebody fairly nondescript it wasn't a game that sticks in the mind but i remember the moment where the ball uh was going out of play and i think either the ball boy threw it to him or someone kicked it to him or whatever um and he he killed this this ball that came his way that wasn't important in the game with the most ridiculous touch it was so magnetic in its uh in its aesthetic uh, value, um, that I just remember thinking, you know, it was one of those where your your breath's taken away and he wasn't even trying. It wasn't even yeah. in the game. It's just the ball came in his orbit and he just, it was like he was playing with it in the middle of the game because uh, in that kind of nonchalant way and it was great and I love that. The other side of that coin is Baku and just, I'll always remember, when you say, what do you remember about Mesut Ozil? I will remember that moment when, he was, you know, in the game from hell when he substituted for a very young, very inexperienced Joe Willock. And it felt like such a kick in the ghoulies for him, yeah. uh, having had a bad game, but, you know, hadn't everyone. And the way he trudged off and the way he sat there staring into space at the end for ages in a, in a real funk was... Uh, whew, it, it felt very, 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 very loaded. And in many ways, I'd probably define that moment as when there felt like being something broken that never really recovered. And well, just 18 months later, he was gone. <laughs> 18 months and about yeah. £20 million pounds worth of wages later, he has uh, finally left. Uh, by the way, Amy, a lot of people agree with you about Luda Goretz. Um, Dave... Vootball, uh, at Dave Vootball, said it should be an assist, but for me it was 100% the Luda Regrets goal. The control of the pass, the chip of the keeper, the control of that chip, the feint to sit down two defenders, just magnificent from beginning to end. Bergkamp-esque, which is the highest praise I can give. Um, that one does come up a lot. Joe Patch said um, a pass he does for the Flamini goal versus Cardiff in his first season. You can see Steve Bold say, what a ball on the bench. Uh, Pablo Mari enthusiast said whenever he first did the chip bounce thing, lovely. Uh, mm. There's also, by the way, a lot of comments about how he juggled his chewing gum as well, uh, for the record. Uh, a lot of people enjoyed that, although the lack of hygiene in this in this COVID time, I, I can't I find it too difficult, to be honest. But it's a lovely bit of football. Uh, well, I'm just saying, uh, you know, if it's, if it's out, don't put it back in. What um, about you, Ian? I mean, I know you were sort of keen to get this wrapped up ASAP, but now that, it, you know, the right, it's all done, essentially. What do you reflect on as your favourite Mesut Ozil moment? I think, I, do you know what? I was actually thinking... Um, 
there was one pass very early on away at Sunderland where I think he put, might have been Theo Walcott in. Right. Um, and and uh, one of those inside the fullback and the weight of the pass and Walcott crossed it and we scored. And I thought, oh my God, he's going to do pre-assist assists for hundreds of goals because of the pace we had on the wings. It didn't work out that way. But I, I love the weight of that pass. Um, and Leicester, which also came up a lot, the Leicester game, the 3-1. Um, I mean, I know a lot of people talk about the dummy, the the, the little flick, then the first dummy, and then the, the little flick to Aubameyang to score the uh, to score the goal. But I really liked his finish in that game as well. I think he made it look ridiculously easy. It was just a side foot finish into the corner. Um, listen, a, a truly great talent and... and I feel sad about it. And I wanted to talk uh, actually in more detail about what happened, what went right and what went wrong. I should say before we do, uh, The Athletic is still running its special January offer. You can sign up for the best football writing around for less than one pound a week. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. I wanted to ask both of you this question. Um, about Mesut Ozil, um, are Arsenal fans, or possibly even the English football culture, to blame for what ultimately happened? Uh, Amy, I'll come to you first. No, no, at all. Are sort of in what are, way? How, well, how, what's the, how can it be the fans' fault? Well, what I'm, the reason I'm asking this is because we have a certain thing. We Mesut Ozil, such a sort of aesthetic player such an ephemeral player sometimes and uh, and English football fans generally don't take to those sort of players we prefer someone who's a bit more heavily involved perhaps in the game that's why I'm I, asking I, I, the question. I just would say Anders Limpar and go back to George Graham's team I mean George might have got a bit fed up with it in the end because he wanted a as he called it performing stars people who would fight for the right to play all the time. But I don't think you'd find anyone that didn't love Anders with all their heart, who was an Arsenal fan at the time. And he was a similarly ephemeral type of player. Not not the, not the same, because Mazet's a very unique footballer. But um, Not quite as languid in his style, though, right? Yeah, no. I, I, I think that in... Um, I think there's a bigger issue about... Mavericks, number tens, uh, that you know, luxury players uh, across the game, and perhaps especially so in English football. I don't know if that's the case, but um, I, I, it, it's a, a type of player that has become uh, increasingly scarce. I don't think you'd find many of them flourishing around anywhere much these days. Whereas if you go back uh, not so long, there was a lot more of, you know, the Rosicki, Chleb types of players. They were related to that Ozil-esque way of playing, I think. So I'm not sure it's anything that I would angle at fans or the culture of the country. James, would you have, did you agree with Amy or do you think there's something in it? I think, I think uh, football's changed. I think tactical identities of teams has changed. I think Amy's absolutely right. Players like Ozil are increasingly scarce and the ones who play that position, 
they tend to have more of a all-round, you know, and defensive contribution as well as the attacking side. But I think if there was any club anywhere in world football where yeah. aesthetics are appreciated, you would imagine it would be uh, Arsenal. I mean, you know, that's so embedded in in the culture since Arsene Wenger has been here twenty years ago or so. Um, so I think, yeah, I think football slightly moved on, but I think. Uh, maybe I think Ozil did lose something as well and, and I think it's maybe something that gets lost in the discussion because he hasn't played so much at the time that I think we probably haven't even been able to see or witness you know is he the same player and I think when we, he got a run of 10 games under Arteta last season yeah I think he looked good but he didn't look like the world-class player that he once was and you know I think there are things happening in tandem, you know, I think he lost something too. And I, I basically feel like it's, when I reflect on the situation, I just can't help but feel what a tremendous waste on all counts, you know, a waste of um, money from an Arsenal perspective, potentially a waste of talent in this guy not playing football, certainly a waste of time uh, in terms of how long it's taken to arrive at this resolution. Well, he's 32 and as well. I mean, he's I mean 32, yeah, this is near yeah. the end of his football career and he spent the last two years basically doing the same as we do, sitting at home. I mean, guys, you've been to the stadium more than he has lately. Yeah, that doesn't sound right, does it? I mean, I, yeah, listen, I think he'll certainly get a few years out of Turkey and maybe he'll want to go and do something and play in America after that. But it's not quite the same level it's not quite you know the very the premier league uh, and i say that respectfully to fenerbahce who are a, a massive massive club but yeah it, it does feel like time wasted time lost and i i see those pictures of him you know with the fenerbahce scarf and he's clearly really happy to be going to istanbul and kind of embracing his heritage the club he supported as a boy but he must also feel surely some regret about how long it's taken to get here and and i, I don't put that all on him i think you know, I'm so pleased that Arsenal and Ozil have managed to collectively find a resolution. And I think it's a bit of an indictment of the people who were doing the talking on that previously that they couldn't get there because this has dragged on much, much longer than it needed to. Quite. Um, I mean, Amy, I want to ask you this. Do you think it's, I know it's not as simple as this, but do you think um, before Arsene Wenger and Arsene, after Arsene Wenger, we saw a different Mesut Ozil? Yeah. Uh, that's probably the most realistic place to put the dividing line. More than um, pre and post contract. Yeah, I would say probably Wenger is the um, is the the right place. Partly because I think they did share something ideologically. They were kind of kindred spirits, and Wenger was always a protector and promoter of. Uh, so it was not that often that he showed any frustration um, to outwardly with the things that wound people up about Ozil, whether it was body language or whether it was not showing up in the sort of tough away games and the things that were easily criticised, Arsene tended not to go along with those things, at least certainly in public. Um, and even now, I think you'll find him sort of sounding quite wistful and, and supportive of, of Meza as a footballer and what he can do and what, what he represents. Um, I think that you also have to ally that with the kind of team, even though it was a fading team towards the end of uh, the Wenger era, but putting players around him who gave him so many options, different varieties of options to aim at and combine with um, was a help. So if he looks up when he's got the ball and either he can float something high towards Giroud or he can slide a ball to someone pacey like Walcott or the or darting Alexis. energy of Alexis Sanchez, obviously, and the, the, the runs from midfield of, of, of Ramsey. And as those players disappeared, um, I think that it just, you know, Aubameyang is a, is a different kind of player for him to, to play off, likewise Lacazette. And I think, you know, certainly as far as runners from midfield were concerned, that clearly has disappeared more or less over the last couple of years. We'll come back to that later, maybe. We will. Um, so I think that, yeah, I'm not making excuses here, but if you want to find a kind of before after, I think it was uh, a concept that was informed by the kind of players around him and the style as it evolved post-Fenger also. Quite. Um, all right. So anyway, he's um, 
he's leaving um, and he's on his he got on his plane and he's in Turkey and You've got to figure, James, that it will have a positive impact on the squad. I mean, I know that uh, Skodron Mustafi was putting out a tweet yesterday saying how he'll always be the man to me and all the rest of it. But in general, you've got to feel that the squad are going to look forward and not have that, that, you know, that monkey on their back to a certain extent. Well, I think there are players, and I think Ozil was pretty popular with some players, uh, and there were players who would have liked to have seen him pick more regularly than he was in the last couple of years. I think equally there are going to be others who think, you know, that it is a good thing that he's moved on. I think being trying to sit back from it, I think it is a good thing for the composition of the squad. Definitely, I think you know this was a squad that was bloated, that was literally too big. You couldn't even register all the players involved in it, and as we've said on here before. I just think that's unhealthy. It breeds unhappiness. It lets things fester. I think it's not a good thing. And I think the fact that Edu's addressing that pretty head on, you know, we've seen Saliba go out on loan. We've seen Kolasinac go out on loan. We've seen Ozil departing now. And I think there might be one or two more, certainly before the end of January. I think that's good. I think you want a tight, focused group who feel like they will have an opportunity to play, who don't feel ostracised, who don't feel excluded. Um, and and I think as well, you know, it, it just frees up a lot of space, doesn't it, on the on the books of the for the salary perspective. I mean, I don't expect those to be immediately reallocated to somebody else because there are lots of other financial considerations here, and and they have paid Mesut off, which is a, a decent chunk. But uh, I, I think it's I think it's a good thing going forward. It means you know we can start to think about how we want to redistribute that and how we want to build the squad. Probably looking ahead to next season, to be honest. I'm not expecting us suddenly to to do a load of business in January. No. Well, I mean, in terms of the number 10, and we wanted to talk a little bit about the number 10. I mean, we're recording the day after we beat Newcastle uh, 3-0. As I said to Amy, Newcastle are shit, right? (laughs) Let's be fair, they're utterly terrible. But there were some very encouraging performances. One of them, yet again, from uh, Emil Smith-Rowe. Amy, we talked just before about how... How do you, you can't expect him, and we talked last week, you can't expect him to fill uh, Ozil's shoes straight away. He's a young player, but he's doing very well. But at the same time, you don't want to bring a player in um, who who might take his place or, or a, and a player, I imagine, who wouldn't want to come in knowing that Emil Smith-Rowe is, is touted to be the number one in that position in the time to come. How do you look after him? I think it's a really fascinating um, scenario and I hope that the club are giving it so much careful thought to do the right thing here because it's clear that over-relying on Emil Smith-Rowe between now and the end of the season, never mind beyond, is a big ask. Um, he's uh, He was such a, a pleasure to watch yesterday. I was lucky enough to be in, in the stadium and I found, you know, when you sometimes you're watching a game and you find your eyes drawn towards a particular player and you, at times the ball's gone somewhere else or whatever and you're watching their movement and their running and their style, what they're thinking. And I did find that it was very easy to just feel my eyes drawn towards him, like observing how he was how he was moving around the pitch and his sort of perpetual motion energy levels, uh, his capacity and hunger for the chase. And then as soon as something's on, it's like that speed of thought where he's already planning what touch he's going to use as quickly as possible to be moving the ball along. It's really uh, been a, a, a massive sort of shot in the arm, an injection of positivity, I think, for Arsenal. And... He seems to have grown so much in confidence as well. And I, I want he's at that stage of his development, a bit like Saka was maybe a year ago when he's coming in, where you're probably trying things and seeing if you can translate all of the things that you want to do or have been able to do on a different stage in, in, onto this new level. And at the moment, it's coming off for him. And if something does, one or two moments where he... Uh, played the ball for, a, he was looking for a Bamiyang and he'd broken through on the right and a Bamiyang was in a really good position but there were a couple of defenders in the way and he just oh. didn't quite execute the pass. He knew exactly what he wanted yes. to do yes. and it didn't come off and he looked quite disappointed in himself and you thought, listen kid, that's okay. Don't I mean, all right, in a different game, maybe if it's a, a, a tighter one against someone um, uh, who aren't as shit as Newcastle, as you put it, Stoney, um, <laughs> 
it might feel yeah. feel more pressurized and it was but it was okay but the fact that he was hard on himself like at that moment but also he, he's really wanting to keep trying things um and a lot of it's coming off so that is outstanding but the picture as far as the club are concerned is a, is a fascinating one because you know to borrow the old Arsene Wenger phrase you don't want to bring someone in and kill a Neil Smith no. row I mean that would be madness but you cannot just leave him to carry the creative uh, burden of this side um and I think back to not that long ago where there is nothing precluding Arsenal from having more than one player of that type uh, in fact there was you know you can re reflect back to the sort of Wilshire Ramsey Rosicky um Hleb, uh, period where there was tons of them too many possibly. and i think that there's a, a you know there could be some exciting times ahead if arsenal can find the right kind of player to come in and at times combine with smith rowe at other times play instead of him um at other times maybe sit some time out so you find maybe there'll be games where someone starts and the other one comes on for the last half an hour uh, a bit of competition, a bit of releasing of pressure, a few op options, but also that hopefully flexibility um, to find a player who can play with him, yeah. uh, ideally yeah. speaking, and make Arsenal even more creative and even more unpredictable and give them even more options. Uh, so, yeah, that would be the thing. I don't know who that person is, and I no. suspect it might be more of a um, matter that's addressed in the summer. It, unless they can find someone that fits that kind of a bill for a loan period now, but I don't know um, how probable that is. It's um, it's tempo, isn't it, uh, James? That's what I feel. I mean, aside from the skill level and the forward passing, and he was because Jamie Carragher was uh, was singing his praises last night on Monday Night Football after the game and talking about first time passes and how um, Emil Smith Rowe loves to play first time passes. He, he has upped the tempo of the whole team and they sort of seem to have responded, haven't they? Yeah, and he has that tempo off the ball as well, you know, when he's chasing back, when he's nicking the ball off the opposition players. Also, just in terms of the runs he makes, you know, he is a guy who will make a run where he knows he's not going to get the ball, but he knows he might pull a defender out of position. He's a guy who will make a run just to tire a fullback out, to drag him into the corner. I mean, his movement is so perpetual. And uh, I, I think he's been absolutely brilliant. I think Amy's right. I think there still is a need for another player in that area of the pitch. I think as brilliant as Smith Rowe has been, we're, we're talking about a sample size that's relatively small here. But I do think the conundrum now is like, what kind of player, you know, do you bring who's not going to kill him, who's going to provide competition, but, you know, there can be a balance between them. Really, really tricky one for the club. I have some sympathy with them because I don't think even a month ago, really, they would have considered Smith Rowe to be quite such a big factor in their squad planning going forward. He has really thrust himself into the picture and uh, he absolutely deserves all the credit he's getting. Quite. I mean, there is a whole... There's a bit of social media guff about the number 10 shirt. Um, mm -hmm. No one... Uh, the understanding, as far as I know, is no one can have it this season. You can't change squad numbers uh, unless we sign some. It's on the shelf for the season. Um Tao, our producer, gave us a list of some of the number 10s, some of the players to have graced uh, the number 10 shirt. Uh, certainly lately, uh, Paul Merson, Dennis Burkamp, Robin Van Persie and Jack Wilshire um, before Mesut Ozil. There's some um, decent talent in there. Um, Ray Kennedy, by the way, early on when I first started watching football, uh, could also play as well. Um, also, Gus Caesar <laughs> was playing uh, in that position. So, And Charlie Nicholas. Um, it's a decent history, but do you think these things really matter? I mean, in the end, if he's playing in the position, Amy, that's that's what's important, really. I think at the moment it's not a big deal. I'm sure that he might may well have a, a a a dream that he will get that shirt, like just just Jack Wilshire did, and he had to wait his time and bide his time until it was available for him. It feels like it's quite young, and it might be a bit of a burden to have immediately, um, but. Uh, I can't see him saying no if he was offered it in the summer, but it w would certainly raise the stakes in terms of expectancy around him. Yes, Tao was just texting me saying it mattered when William Gallas had it, I can tell you. And I think that's a very, very fair point uh, to make. Do we Thank have you. to ever talk about that ever again? 
<laughs> no, we don't. We don't. It just came up, and Can I we think stick it's worth that in, real, in, in handbrake off room one hundred and one. <laughs> There's a few in that list. There but, is um, a lot I'd like to put in there. Yeah, stating the obvious. <laughs> yeah, but um, uh, by the way, Jack Wilshire's uh, back for Bournemouth, and we, I, I, you know, I think most Arsenal fans will. We wish him all the best. Uh, we hope that it's brilliant uh, news that things work out for him because that. His career uh, has really blighted by injuries, and I hope uh, I hope he does well. And I hope he comes back to the Emirates when we're all there, and we can say a proper thank you um, uh, to him. Uh, anyway, um, we'll talk uh, in part two about um, Amy and uh, and James have written a few pieces. Uh, Amy, you've written particularly about uh, Thomas Partey, and I want to talk a little bit about him uh, in a short while. <laughs> We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Uh, thank you, by the way, for all the uh, suggestions for Mesut Ozil moments. We didn't read out all of them. There were quite a lot. There were quite a lot which said their favourite Mesut Ozil was, uh, moment was when he left. Um, I, I don't know. I think the time that's for That's just you, Stoney. No, that's not just me, as it turns <laughs> no, out. Know, uh, it is quite a few people. It's not. To be honest, I wanted him to go for a while, but now it's done. I feel a little bit like James, a certain sadness about the whole thing, that it, that it didn't work out uh, how um, how it might have done. But, do you know, what what can you do? Um, Amy, you wrote a piece, as I said, about um, Emile Smith-Rowe and also Thomas Partey, who played uh, very, very well last night for the 70 minutes. I know you said a very nice thing we were just before we were talking about how, how lovely it would have been if the fans would have been there to give him a big standing ovation when he came off, because he did run that game a little bit. Um, he's a very different sort of player from what we've had in the last few years. I uh, I found that it was almost like a flick of a switch moment when he gathered the ball and, and with that incredibly kind of like sudden change of, of, of gear and, di- and direction just shifted away. And then with the next instant, uh, lofted this beautiful pass through to Aubameyang, which uh, set Arsenal in train towards going ahead and basically wrapping up the game. And it, it had been really rubbish up till that point, to be honest, the game. Um, quite hard work. And it just needed that moment of inspiration. And he produced it. And it was, a, it was, a, it was like muscle memory for a fan where you sort of find yourself drifting back in your head to like, oh God, Manuel Petit could have been, you know, floating that ball through to Ian Wright or Cesc Fabregas could have been floating that ball through to Thierry Henry or various, uh, you know, Santi Cazorla to um, uh, Van Persie. You, know, you said or, Petit in the article and I thought, yes, and it really instantly transported me back to sort of 98 and exactly that sort of pass. I have to be honest and, and credit somebody whose name I can't recall who, who tweeted that to me immediately. And I thought, oh, yeah, so it's not, <laughs> not all my own work. Um, but Well, but, thank you, random person. <laughs> yes, random person. You've done a great job. Um, but it was it, it was that thing that has been so, you know, I think that any Arsenal fan will have this image of, of the kind of metronomic sluggishness uh, of Arsenal's midfield in recent seasons where it's just, OK, get the ball, take a touch, have a look to the left, have a look to the right, yeah. pop it to the next person, back it comes, let's go back and start again. And um, it, it's it's quite dreary uh, and it, it, it it's quite slow. And suddenly having the capacity to unlock the game with a quick moment from midfield felt... <laughs> um, yes. Very dynamic and very refreshing. Yeah, pretty much. And it felt, watching the game, the combination of, you know, it's two very contrasting styles, but both brought speed to the, you know, midfield or to supporting the the strikers and the attack in Partey and Smith-Rowe. So Smith-Rowe is obviously much more about the driving runs and the perpetual motion and the rhythm and the uh, uh, dribbling. And Partey's was more about sort of the the quality of moment of picking his pass, um, but it felt like a, 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 the green shoots. I wouldn't go overboard because Newcastle were rubbish, and you know because it's one game they've played together. I think eighty seven or eighty eight minutes, minutes uh, yes. ever uh, so far. So, but it does give a kind of 
these two focal points instead of going side to side to side to side across the, the midfield there's one further back and one further forward doing different stuff but doing it quickly um yeah. and it felt a bit like well thank god for that well, quite. James, I mean, it's that word tempo again, isn't it? Also, by the way, about Thomas Partey, didn't, don't you like the fact that he's happy to receive the ball pretty much anywhere? It looks like he's demanding the ball and they're starting to give it to him now. Yeah, he's happy to take it under pressure. I really like that about him. I do think his part in that first Aubameyang goal is, is just stunning. I mean, the way he separates from his man and oh, plays that ball beautiful. off the outside of his boot, just beautifully done. And I think... What we heard about Partey when he arrived from Atletico Madrid is that he felt there were other dimensions to his game that weren't necessarily being expressed in Atletico's system. And he wanted to come to Arsenal to become really the best player in the world in his position. And I know that might sound like a big claim, but that's his ambition. And I think, you know, we're beginning to see signs that there is a lot more to him than what we've seen previously and what he was doing for Diego Simeone, that he can be someone who... You know, in a very different way to someone like an Ozil, can help us progress the ball, can help us get up the field because he has that ability to separate. He has that the, the, the strength uh, to hold off the challenges, like you say, and he has the intelligence to pick the passes. So he just looks like a proper midfield player. Um, I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, no. it's been such a long time since we've had someone who ticks all those boxes. Actually, in the press conference, um, it felt like an opportune moment to ask Arteta exactly that. Like, is this you know, uh, one of the things about him that he's here to express himself and have more freedom than he had previously. And basically Arteta broke into this really, really broad smile at that point, like almost like the cat that got the cream. Um, so that seemed to strike a chord. I think they're really hoping that there's a, a, a development here uh, sort of blossoming. But this is only the start. And I think he needs probably bags of time to get used to everybody and... Like, as we were talking before, Stoney, it's that feeling that it must be so strange. I think the way he arrived here during a pandemic, yeah, he was on international was duty, yeah. you know, that, that footballers are living in these kind of um, micro bubbles at the moment, almost, where, yes, they see their teammates and the coaching staff and the medical teams and so on. But other than that, they don't, you know, they're not really allowed to be seeing anyone else apart from, I suppose, their immediate family. And... It's quite, must be so strange to be moving to a new country and in under those conditions, and to to be kind of cut off from feeling connected, feeling the appreciation and love and excitement of people, and that kind of inspiring you. None of that's been there for him. Plus, he's had this injury, so you know he's just had to kind of get on with it. It's been a slow burn. Yeah. Um, and I suspect that pro probably for the rest of this season, it will be about him kind of exploring more, finding himself more within the team, within Arsenal, within London, uh, and slowly, hopefully, things open up. And hopefully, the next season, I think, is when sort of uh, there'll be a relaunch, perhaps, of this ideal Thomas Party, where he's trying to be the best player he can be in his position in the world. Thomas B uh, wrote uh, actually about the article, said a brilliantly written article as usual. Amy, it's nice to finally see some sort of balance in our midfield. Smithrow is a massive talent. He and Saka seem to be able to find each other with their eyes closed. We all enjoyed that goal last night. Xhaka also played very well again. Uh, and then he, he said, I still would love to see Maitland-Niles given a chance alongside Partey. Um, James, do you... Maitland-Niles did not play particularly well against uh, Newcastle the other day, filling in... Sorry, against um, Palace, filling in at left-back. Mm. But what do you think? Do you think he could do the job? I think that Reid will be waiting a long time, to be honest, <laughs> to see him next to Partey. And, and I don't say that as someone who doesn't think Maitland-Niles has certain qualities. I, I think he does. But, you know, Mikel Atese, I think, clearly has some reservations yes. about the player. Um, he was not even on the bench for the game uh, against Newcastle in the Premier League after the, his performance against Palace. Uh, and I think his opportunities in midfield have been even harder to come by. When he has got games, it's tended to be in the full-back or wing-back positions. He played in midfield, didn't he, in the Europa League one or tw once or twice and looked pretty good, to be honest, against a much lower standard of opposition. I, I have the suspicion that the writing is slightly on the wall for Ainsley Maitland-Niles at Arsenal. Um, there was talk about him going last summer. He stayed, but it wouldn't surprise me if Arsenal entertained bids for him in this window and, and almost certainly in the summer window. I just think 
you know, we've talked about this in the past, but sometimes the chemistry between a player and a manager isn't isn't quite right. And I just sense that with Arteta and Maitland-Niles. And I guess, well, you don't have to be, you'd have to have a sixth sense to tell it. He doesn't pick him, does he, with any regularity? So, yeah, I slightly fear for him in that regard. Is it, uh, briefly, I mean, is it that with Ainsley, he, he can play in too many positions. That is not, gen- it's a bit of a curse for some players, isn't it? It can be. I mean, it, it, look, Saka plays in, has played in a lot of positions. I think but he's brilliant so much depends. Them, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know, it's it's probably too too um, easy to put it down to that. I think that if you're good enough and your manager is backing you, then the chances come. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. Uh, uh, James, um, you've written a piece about um, about the the 120 million pounds loan that Arsenal have taken out mm-hmm. from the Bank of England at very preferential rates, which has caused some disquiet and unhappiness amongst some of the smaller Premier League clubs. Yeah, because not all Premier League clubs qualify for this scheme, which enables them to get this loan at, at, at a very low interest rate, like you say. Tottenham uh, took out a loan in June last year um, for about 150 million quid, something like that, and their loan is paid back at 0.5%, which is pretty remarkable um if arsenal's loan of 120 million is paid back at the same rate uh the cost will be about two hundred fifty thousand pounds which is a lot Can of we money apply but in the scheme for of this thing yeah <laughs> <laughs> i could do with it i could do with 120 million if they're offering it to me <laughs> but um yeah some of some premier league clubs are unhappy they say it's sort of preferential treatment that you know there's a competitive advantage to the big clubs because basically you have to have a certain credit rating and given yes. the revenues of some clubs, that's not possible for them. I think the reason that it's interesting um, is I just think it helps sort of contextualise the conversation about the transfer market. And I think, you know, this is a loan that's come from the Bank of England, effectively from the Treasury. And I think the optics of Arsenal taking a loan that is to help them cope with the losses from the pandemic and then, uh, and then going and making a big signing in the January transfer window would be problematic at a time when... Football's coming under scrutiny, you know, in Parliament and in the media. Uh, I, I do think that they will be a little bit cautious about that, and understandably so. So I think we should temper our expectations, you know, for the January window. I, I've sort of said all along, I think if Arsenal do anything, it's most likely to be loan deals. And I, I think that may still be the case. So Neymar's not coming, is what you're saying? I, what I'm saying is, yeah, it's not a case of us allowing Neymar in. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean it's difficult, uh, Amy, with clubs and their finances. This is this is meant to just tide Arsenal over essentially for the next six months. I mean, I was reading James Peace. We're talking hundreds of millions of pounds of losses. Yep, I mean it's you know football is not uh, got you know it's got special status in that you know. Everyone's still expected to be playing and keeping us entertained, but it's not really getting special status in terms of, you know, the money is not rolling in for like a lot of businesses. This is a nightmare for them. So they've just got to keep going and hope that uh, this thing can be under control and life can get a bit more back to normal. I'd be surprised if there's not a lot of clubs who still find their revenues are in a bit of trouble, even when grounds are open and fans are back because I'm sure there's a lot of associated advertising, marketing, etc, etc, that won't be there because this has been a nightmare for <laughs> virtually everything. Yes, quite. Mm. No, it's not just football so clubs who are suffering. I think we can all agree there. A um, couple of letters, uh, letters, uh, emails uh, sent to us. I hope that Arteta continues, S. Sid C said this, I hope that Arteta continues to select on merit, striking the right balance in personnel on the pitch between youth and experience, rest and rotation, pace and unpredictability. Beating Southampton, Wolves and Villa would demonstrate the current squad is better than mid-table. Anything more, I believe, needs selective reinforcement in the summer when there'll be when there will be some natural churn with contracts finishing. Um, I mean, we have got some difficult games coming up, James, but Southampton, Wolves and Villa, we beat those three. We're in a reasonable position, aren't we? Yeah, it'll be interesting because we've had, you know, pretty favourable run of fixtures and ones in which we needed to do well and we have we've yeah. turned up some really really good results five clean sheets as well as well uh, 
yeah, on the bounce, which should not be overlooked. I think huge credit due to Rob Holding and Bern Leno who have been sort of the mainstays of that defence. But I think they are in for sterner tests. You know, a couple of fixtures against Southampton, United, like you say, Wolves away, even if they're not quite the force they were last season, Villa away. Um, yeah, it, it will be interesting to see how we cope. Um, I'm optimistic that the men- momentum we've built in this run will sort of carry us through. I hope so. Um it just looks good to look at a Premier League table today and be in the top half. Do you know what I mean? Oh, was last huge... night. Only, only oh. on goal difference above Villa, who played four games less. But... I know, but I'll take it for now. <laughs> I, I <laughs> noticed that. There was, I can't remember what, what comments or whatever, but somebody turned around and was obviously incredibly... Somebody was praising what was going on and whoever responded went, oh my God, how can you possibly say something? Arsenal are 10th. And I just sat yeah. there and thought... That's all right, top half the table. It's better than we were. Yeah. 14th a few weeks ago. Um, One other question from Tony G. Amy, does this now make Pepe surplus to requirements? And if so, can Arsenal recoup some funds through a loan or an outright sale? And which club would take the player? And then he adds, does Raul Sandlehi have a new club yet? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of questions in there. But just on the Pepe um, uh, question, he's not... He's. I mean, we said this the other the other day. He's certainly not first choice on the right, is he? So, you know, Saka's going to be in that position. Well, I think it's a worry that you know when, for example, even yesterday when uh, it's time to make some changes that he doesn't doesn't even get on. So, no. Um, I suppose he's got these next few weeks to sort of sink or swim as far as impressing Arteta is concerned, and whether Arteta's mind is already made up, he is a guy who does seem to reach quite strong conclusions on players, it seems. And once he has, uh, he's not that easily for turning. Uh, And it it wouldn't be that surprising if um, come the summer, they're trying to find some sort of solution. But without wanting to make any kind of comparisons to, to the Ozil situation, I mean, a part of the reason that dragged on was that Arsenal wanted to try and recoup some money from this sort of, situation where they were hemorrhaging over this deal and it's going to be hard to recoup the sort of money if they try and cash in that is going to be in a normal circumstance acceptable for he's still a young player um he's not uh, i've seen this said quite often by people lately which is that there aren't bad players there are bad fits and that's something that i think of a lot when i think of pepe and i wouldn't be amazed if he eventually i don't know when go if it doesn't work at arsenal go somewhere else and does pretty well um but uh it's a question of what arsenal can do to compromise because there's no way there's anything approaching 72 million that is available for a player like that anymore Um, not right now uh, possibly not plus his his salary will be half decent so that's a a factor um but i mean possibly uh, alone with a, a Alone with a view to maybe if he um, finds his mojo again somewhere else. And I'm, there are definitely people in France who think that there is a great player there. A really, really outstanding talent there. And it's, Give us 72 uh, million quid, you can have him. And good luck. Well done. Um, by the way, you can uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, uh, handbrakeoffpod at gmail.com. Uh, dot com is our email address handbrakeoffpod at gmail.com uh, song suggestions opinions anything really questions you want for us um we're going to play another game uh, now of uh, random ass generator <laughs> um do you remember this game from last week uh, basically what happens is uh Tao will send me the name of a player We'll go round the room, I say the room, we're all in separate rooms, um, with a fact or thought or even an opinion on that player uh, until we run out. Uh, so I'm now waiting for Tayo to send me... Uh, ah, OK, the player uh, is Sylvan Wiltord. Uh, Amy. Wiltord! <laughs> <laughs> I can't yeah. argue with that. That's a good uh, one. I like that. You don't need to say any more. And if you don't know, ask someone who should. Go on, James. <laughs> uh, I'll say record signing because I believe he <gasps> I was. I was going to do that one. You out already? I can't just say French. That's too ridiculous. <laughs> I can't. Can I say moody? I'm going to say moody, though. I got a feeling he was a bit moody. Um, I'm going to tell a little story of when I once went to interview 
someone who wasn't him at the Arsenal training ground in the days when we were allowed to sit in the canteen and have a chat with a player. And I remember Sylvain Wiltor coming over and sort of making faces and sort of going wee-wee poo-poo and things like that to try and put us off. <laughs> there you go. Wow. Go on then, James. I think he was a bit of a kind of class clown type. He, you know, he was known oh, for I think he was, quite definitely. high-spirited. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say really versatile player who was bought as a striker, as a goal scorer, you know, kind of one of the potential solutions to the perennial fox in the box problem Arsenal had at the time, but ended up playing a vast amount of his football on the flanks. He played left wing many times, right wing many times. And there was something great about Arsenal's lineup in those days where, you know, we would have Wiltord on one side and maybe like Jumberg or Pires on the other. And it felt like we were just playing with four attackers. And uh, yeah, I missed those days. My favourite uh, assist from him, it was one of my favourite goals, was against, I think, Leverkusen in the Champions League when Robert Pires played it to Dennis Bergkamp. He did an exchange of passes with uh, Patrick Vieira and put Wiltord in down the right, who just at full speed, slid it across to Thierry Henry, who just side-footed it in. And it was only about two minutes after the goal we sc- the, the first goal we scored. One of my favourite, it was it was it took about four and a half seconds from one end to the other. Uh, and Will told he, he obviously could play, uh, but it was it was quite a simple pass. But I just love that goal. Uh, I'm can I um, can I go on to the international stage for a moment yeah, and talk yeah, about uh, when French when France won the Euros in two thousand. Uh, and he played a significant role in the final uh, against Italy, which went to a golden goal. And uh, we'll, I think Italy were en route to winning that. And uh, we'll tour to get the equaliser. If not, he played a big part in it or played a part in uh, in the winner. Um, but he was a, 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 um, a guy who was popped up. Uh, wasn't the, the star of that team, obviously, when in the attack they had uh, Trezeguet, Thierry Henry and... Zidane to name but three, but he uh, he played a vital role in France becoming uh, European champions on top of being World Cup winners. Uh, I'm on I'm on less solid ground at this point, <laughs> I'll say, but I think there's a sort of weird stat about Wiltor. Basically, he was part of the squad for the Invincibles 2003-2004. He played a fair bit in the first half of the season, but his contract was running out. Um, at the end of that year. And so in the second half of the season, he barely played. I think it was him and Carnu. They were in the same contractual position. They were both leaving and you, you never saw him, essentially. I think they played the odd cup game. And it meant that he he left at the end of the Invincible season, I believe, on 49 goals for Arsenal, which, of course, we should have known at the time was an omen for how the Invincibles themselves, the following season, would finish on 49 undefeated. If only we'd been paying attention, I wouldn't have travelled to Manchester for that game. Exactly. Um, we could have known. Yeah. It was all still Van Wiltord. I've got one more Wiltord fact, if we're going round again. Do you remember his song? No. I mean... No. It, Did he have a song? It just, showed, it just showed the classic imagination of the Terrace fan. Super, super sylph, super, super sylph. <laughs> I think sylph. it was that. Super sylph and Wiltor. It's marvellous. Does anyone remember any other goals that he scored apart from the obvious? <laughs> well, he scored capital? 49 and we can't remember anything except that. That's what I was just suddenly thinking. Do you know what? He Didn't he score another goal against Man U in the FA Cup the following season for us to win that game? Like I said, guys, I'm not on solid ground at this point. Uh, he went on strike, didn't he, to get his move to Arsenal. Um, he got in big trouble at Bordeaux because mm. he, he was so determined to come to London that he refused to play for Bordeaux. I think James has won today, I have to say. James, I could declare you the winner of the Random Arse Generator much. Sylvain Wiltord edition. Oh, that's, I'm, uh, to be honest, I'm amazed. I didn't think there would be ever be a version of this, Amy, that you wouldn't win, but oh, I'll take it. It's impressive. It's impressive. By the way, we have a couple more uh, from the post bear before we let you go. Um, Mick Darcy asked Amy, is there a jinx on the Ozil song? Because West Ham sung it for Pyatt, Spurs for Deli Alley. Um, and then he then he says, I just don't think I understand, which is a very nice <laughs> little uh, reference. I'll be know. honest with you. Um, I always struggle with this song. Because the better than uh, yes. Zidane thing, I just, I just, ah, uh, I just yeah. found that tricky. Well, is Rob Holding better than Cannavaro? 
You know what I mean? Well, quite. I found it years yeah, ago. Yeah, but I don't think Rixi- the people were singing. I don't think people were singing the Urza one ironically. Oh, well, right, yeah. yeah. Quite, quite. I think that's probably true. I mean, well, listen, years ago we had Rixie is better than Hoddle. And much as I uh, hated to admit it, Hoddle was actually better than Rixie, I think. Um, by the way, Binoy Shah is the, from, he wants a bit of Per Murta Sacker appreciation. Hey guys, love the pod. Wanted to get a quick shout out to the big man for the work he's doing with the Academy. Um, I mean, I don't know how much of the, the performance from the youngsters can be attributed to him, but. He's a, he's a big personality, and I'm sure the academy players look up to him in every sense, Amy, you know. Oh, yeah, but I would definitely say I don't think he's had masses to do with uh, Saka and Smith-Rowe. I'd say that okay. m- most of that work have been done by the coaches at Hairlin, probably prior to Pair uh, taking over. Would you not agree, James? I'm trying to get my time on no, when I we started. Agree. I definitely agree. And I and actually this is not to, this uh, is not to um, you know. Uh, I think Pear's doing great stuff down there, but I just think that that, that there are other people probably more meriting of the um, uh, the backslapping and the, the the gratefulness for the work they did in bringing through these and there are many of those people, players. you know, and, and, and really they definitely are. deserve huge credit. Um, you know, lots of coaches, lots of people who've been involved with the academy at management level. I think those two players, you know, that's what all that work, all that investment is for. Um, and so they must be delighted to see them doing so well. Now, a lot of these people aren't probably with the club anymore, but um, wherever you are, thank you. Thank um, you. Um, by the way, guys, can I chip in something? You just mentioned Glenn Hoddle and it made me think of something. So I don't know if you're aware, guys, but there's a... Um, TV show in the UK, I believe it's a Korean format originally, it's in the US as well, called The Masked Singer. Have either yes. of you seen it? Yes. So I have not seen du- it. During, so in The Masked Singer, Amy, it's quite surreal. It's sort of like you've <laughs> taken something and you can't really believe what you're watching. It's celebrities in sort of what you describe as sort of football mascot style costumes. Is that fair, Ian? Yes, that's exactly what it is. Singing like. songs and the what, panel singing? have to guess. Yeah, yeah, they're actually singing, and the panel have to try and guess who the masked singer is. It's nuts. And, there was, and have they got and, anything and, to go on other than the quality yeah, of their voice? There, there are VTs before where they'll, where they'll give sort of cryptic clues, a bit sort of like, um, remember Lloyd Grossman, like who would live in a house like this? It's that sort of thing. They're like, you know, when I was a lad, I, I was very competitive and stuff like that. And they're like, is it, is it is it like the question question of sport, uh, old question of sport ones? Where very much like they guess the person and there'd be these kind of slightly shaky shots of someone's yeah. fingernail or Cameras something. Like, yeah, up yeah. there, shorts or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a bit like that. And anyway, there was a singer recently and a lot of the clues were sort of football related. And the panel, there's a four person panel, you know, Jonathan Ross is on it, Davina McCall. And they guessed that this one, I can't remember uh, what the suit was that they were wearing, but our good colleague on this podcast, Lee Dixon, got shouted out. They were like, I think that's Lee Dixon in that suit. Oh, he was dressed as a grandfather clock. That's it. (laughs) And I texted Lee and said, I I don't know if you're going to be pleased about this or angry. But Jonathan Ross, or whoever it was, has just said he thinks the grandfather clock singing on ITV at 6pm is you. And Lee texted me back saying, maybe it is. And I thought, (laughs) is the whole knee operation just a lie that we were fed while he went off and filmed The Masked Singer for six weeks? Anyway, much to my disappointment at the end of the show, they pull the the mask off. It's Glenn Hoddle. Of course Well, um, uh, uh, there was a... you know, similar texting going on in uh, a group of people that w- we made the 89 film with. Uh, right. And Lee's reaction to that was uh, a little bit more fruity in that message. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Be mistaken for Glenn Hoddle, you know, not ideal, I suppose, for an Arsenal man. Let's have a song. Well, you know, this seems apt at this point. Um, Amy, we'll have a song. Well, I'm going to pick a bit of Fella Cootie because I know uh, Tyra will approve um, our producer and any excuse for a bit of Fella Cootie and given um, all the money that's been spent on Mesut Ozil's contract in the last year and a half or so it's expensive shit People will go like to quench your soul People will go like to quench your soul 
Okay, James. That went down well. <laughs> I am. Um, I'm going to go for a song. So obviously, in the absence of crowds, Arsenal have taken to playing songs after goals, uh, which normally is something I heartily disapprove of. But uh, you know, I, in this instance, I don't mind it. So Aubameyang, after his last couple of goals against in the FA Cup against Newcastle, I think it was, and then in the game most recently against Newcastle, his first goal, uh, still Dre was played um, by Dr. Dre. And I'm going to choose that because we have signs that Aubameyang is still Aubameyang. Yes. Uh, I'm going to have... Um, uh, I can see clearly now, Johnny Nash. Um, I know it's the rain has gone. It could be a zeal, but you know what I mean. Um, that's. I just feel like the fog has lifted and uh, we can start again. Um, thank you to Tayo, our producer. Thank you to Amy and James. Nice to see you guys. And um, thank you for all your um, emails and letters and all the rest of it. Um, this has been the Handbrake Off podcast, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. See you soon. Thank you.